Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. Our guest today is Heather Lee. Heather is a licensed clinical social worker with a long background helping people. Today, we're going to hear from her a story about how she helped herself. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Heather. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor to be here, and I want to thank you for all you're doing to kind of move these conversations forward. This is a really exciting time that we're re-embracing, you know, plant medicine and psychedelics for healing, and I just really appreciate all you're doing to keep that conversation in the forefront. Well, thank you. Uh, We're going to be talking today, we're going to focus on your story about the interaction between psychedelics and healing. First, I have some questions I'd like to, uh, to ask until before we yeah. get right into that part of the, of the interview. Uh, growing up, uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in a little bedroom community of New York City, a little town called Bronxville, New York, which is in Westchester. And it was a little town where, you know, it's one mile square with three country clubs. That might tell you something. It was a very you know, upscale, lovely little place to grow up where all the, a lot of Wall Street folks called, they have sort of a bedroom community for that. But I was, my mom was one of the first divorcees in town. And my mom was a single mom who raised my sister and I in a five-story walk-up apartment in this lovely little village. And so my mom was kind of this known entity because she had a beautiful boutique right on the main street. So I was a shopkeeper's kid growing up Uh in a you know, very upscale town, but I was the shopkeeper's kid. That's how I think of myself. <laughs> okay. And as the shopkeeper's kid, what were your perceptions, if any, about psychedelics? Well, psychedelics weren't really in the conversation too much. Um, back when I was, a, a, you know, in high school so much, there was certainly, it was the eighties, there was cocaine, there were some drugs going on. It was really when I got to college. I came to school out in Colorado back in 1981 and immediately kind of fell in with a group that was pretty interested in exploring psychedelics. There was a lot of psilocybin, you know, being consumed. And from the get-go, for me, I was aware that this was a path to a deeper inner wisdom and connection to spirituality and I was reading a lot of Native American literature back then. The works of Carlos Castaneda, Alan Watts were books that were on my forefront. Um, So all of my college friends who sort of turned me on to psilocybin had thought it was something you did more in a recreational party mode. And then I came along and I was like, oh, no, we need to be day trippers. We need to go out in nature. We need to bring journals. We need to have magnifying glasses and binoculars. And so I became a little field trip leader and really from the get go realized this was this was an opportunity to really dig deeper into consciousness and self-awareness and connection to nature. Can you remember your very first psychedelic experience? I can. It was psilocybin in the mountains of Colorado. And I immediately had this wonderful perception of being one with nature, that there was not a difference between me as human, plants, rocks, animals, that we were all 
one, you know, that lovely experience that so many people have with psilocybin. And that was really, it really sort of spoke to me that this was, this was something I wanted to really incorporate into my wellness lifestyle was using this medicine. I would say I use it now quarterly for sure, you know, just to really deepen that connection and that sense of spiritual wellness that's part of my overall wellness. And when you just mentioned that you had this very powerful feeling of being part of nature rather than living in nature, that you had that sense of being so connected, you referenced that many people have the same experience. And I've been interviewing people all over the country, and I want to validate what you just said uh, by by, uh, telling you that they're all experiencing very similar uh, experiences yeah. that then that you have had with regard to this connection with nature. Now, so the first one was with with um, with psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, did you have other psychedelic experiences while going to college? I did. You know, I dabbled a little in LSD. That felt a little intense for me. I think it was probably because you know, as we know, set and setting is so important. And I think the setting was not. You know, I did that in a dorm with too many people around. I, you know, I've gotten very clear on, for me, what is the right set and setting. And I think early experiences that many of us had in college, we didn't know about that. We just were doing it sort of with not such good thoughtfulness around that. So for me, my first LSD experience was not really ideal because I think I just, I, I was, I got paranoid. I was afraid my mother was gonna call had everybody block the phones, you know, it just, it was not, it spoke well to what I know now when I work with people and I guide people, how important set and setting is. And I think those early experiences, I wasn't so skilled in that regard. We hear stories about uh, what you called uh, paranoia uh, from people uh, taking psychedelic substances. And I have a theory about that. And my theory is that when you take honest, good citizens and turn them into criminals by having something that they're doing Mm -hmm. in large numbers be illegal, you're creating paranoia. Because when an honest person like yourself, and you're obviously an honest person, I can tell by just looking at you that you're a regular citizen and and a good, honest person, when an honest person does something that's illegal, we feel it. Yeah. We're aware that we're doing something illegal. You you give a, a person who's a criminal a bag full of heroin or cocaine or marijuana or anything yeah. and say, drive across town, they don't think anything about it. But you give an honest person like yourself a bag of something illegal and say, drive across town. And I'm here to tell you, you're like careful and watching and a little scared and yeah. a little nervous, et cetera, right? Yeah. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, it's that little scared and that little nervous and that little something that creates that paranoia because, and listen to the, to the fear that you had. Will my mom find out? In other words, will somebody know that I'm doing something that I'm not supposed to be doing? Totally. Right. Yeah. And it's so painful for me 
to know this mm-hmm. and to know that that just like decent people like yourself all over the country, we now have over 30 million people that have done LSD. We have many more than that who have done tried uh, MDMA and many more than that who have tried psilocybin. But lurking in the background for all of these honest people is the knowledge that they're doing something illegal. Yeah. And that's something, yeah, that, you know, I'm on a cause to do something yes. about that. Well, that and, so you the, know, some of all that bad messaging we got, you know, reefer madness type stuff. I mean, part of what was going on for me at that time was there had been some after school special back when I was, you know, in middle school that was like called go ask alice or something and it was all about this girl who went crazy because she did drugs and she lived then had to be in an institution it was never the same and that crept into my you know first lsd experience too i'm never going to be the same i'm going to be in an institution so we're we've got to culturally we're unwrapping a lot of that bad and faulty messaging i had the exact same experience that you did in my very first lsd uh, trip which was I'm, something's going on and I'm I'm crazy and I'm going to be crazy for the rest of my life. I'm going to be in an institution. And it was a result of that kind of advertising that we had heard. Right. 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 Well, even <laughs> on a, one of my most recent psilocybin journeys, when I really, you know, was sort of losing grasp with this confines of self and ego. And as I was slipping into that other realm, this little moment crept crept in where I remember listening to myself saying, this isn't your brain on drugs. This is your brain on enlightenment. And I was like, yes, Mm. that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us a little more if there's something to tell about your college experiences, and then we're going to move on from there. Well, I think that just was a, a, you know, it was an amazing time to really begin my journey with psilocybin. And I really, you know, my work, that's my medicine of choice. And I really feel called to work with psilocybin. But as as you know, and you speak with many people working with psychedelics, I sort of feel like, I, I mean, I work in partnership with the mushroom. I feel like it is an entity, it is a living organism that has that I work in tandem and in partnership with. And And I learned that back in my early experiences. You know, it wasn't it wasn't all me. It was the mushrooms and their wisdom and connecting to something so much bigger than myself. And I have such reverence for the power of that and just working, you know, honoring the power that is the mushroom wisdom and working as a partner with that medicine. And nowadays, when you uh, ingest the mushrooms, how many grams do you typically take? Oh, Anywhere from three to six is kind of the sweet spot. I mean, if that, I just that, want to go out and do a hike and really kind of still be conversational, enjoy nature, you know, it's somewhere in the two, like maybe one to two grams. But once you get into three, I'm behind my eye shades with my music doing the whole inner journey. And is there a particular music that you um, lean towards or does it vary from experience to experience? Well, I'm so impressed with these fabulously curated soundtracks that now are being developed specifically for psychedelic journey work. And I have just, you know, I've sort of used a variety of them. There's not one particular one I can speak to, but they're also carefully curated. And for me, you know, Native American sounds, you know, drumming, shamanic music, that all works for me. The Johns Hopkins track, which has a lot of sort of Gregorian chants, 
doesn't work for me. And I'm cautious when I use that with clients that maybe have some past, you know, Catholic guilt and religious trauma to steer them away from some of those. So I think it's it's kind of personal. You got to find what sort of themes and genres speak to you. I'm glad you just said that about uh, using the Gregorian chants with uh, with former or Catholics, because uh, <laughs> the other side of that is if you want to get them to get be able to get into their guilt, maybe you purposely put on the Gregorian chants well, as an opportunity to get into what darkness is lurking there. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So you experimented in college. You had a good experience with psilocybin. Not so good with LSD. Retrospectively, you, you look yeah. back at that because it wasn't the LSD. It was the set in the setting. Correct. And then you graduate from college. And did you continue? Uh, then you went to graduate school. You became a licensed clinical social worker. Yeah. I, I know you studied at Harvard. You've got an esteemed career. Um, yeah. Did you um, did you continue uh, during this uh, wonderful career to experiment? Oh, just going to correct you real quick. I did a training at Harvard. I don't want. I not like didn't. I did a training at Harvard. Yes. Just want to put that out there. Yeah. And you know, my graduate work at Arizona State University. I worked. I, I led a support group for Native American students who were had transitioned off reservations to the university, and you know, have a lot of you know, hold a lot of regard for Native American traditions. And so that was part of, continued to be kind of part of my path. And I'd say also informed some of my understanding around psychedelics in a more, you know, traditional use as well. Um, but it wasn't really until, I think my interest has always been in alternative states of consciousness. I've done a lot of work with dream work and guided imagery and, you know, a lot of, you know, shamanic journey work. So it was only recently that I, you know, just completed my certification training in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. I recently got back from Jamaica where I was leading, you know, psilocybin retreats and doing group work with psilocybin. So it's just feels like I'm now at the perfect place and time. And then we'll get into how, like what's really going on personally really brings it all home. But, you know, it's all, it's so lovely when you can kind of see your life from this step, from a step back, and I can see how perfectly all my experiences and all the things that I've done have led me to this point in time. Like I just, it's really a wonderful feeling when I truly feel like, whoa, this all fits. I'm in the right place at the right time to be doing exactly what I meant to do. That's a wonderful, was wonderful to hear that. Um, tell us about the uh, certification training you took in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Yeah, so it's through the Integrative Psychiatry Institute and that's based out here in Boulder. And it really, you know, I'm in the first cohort. It was a year long program. And, you know, our faculty and speakers were the lead researchers at Johns Hopkins, Mary Casamano, uh, Richard Schwartz doing IFS work. I mean, all sorts of the, you know, really, top of the field folks were folks that were educating and training. And um, as I recall, Colorado passed a bill making vegetables that come out of the ground legal. Did I get it correct? <laughs> I believe so. You know, there's still this gray area around some of these things, but. But the psil psilocybin was legal during the training program? It was not. Oh. So ketamine, ketamine was the only you know, psychedelic that we could actually have experiential use of during the training. But 
I'm not somebody who waits around for things. So that's why I was like, well, where can I be doing this? Well, then I'm going to Jamaica. So I went to Jamaica and worked with Myco Meditations, facilitating group retreats down there for a while. And I actually just yesterday was speaking with the folks at um, Beckley Retreat. So I'm going to start doing some work with them. I'm amazing. Amanda Fielding and her group. Uh, in England? Um, I'll be doing some things in Jamaica, and they're going to soon be rolling out things in Costa Rica ah. and probably also doing some stuff in the Netherlands. I see. So slowly we're going to creep our way across sure, the Sure, because the psychedelic just... scientists around the world, are we're all seeking places where the psychedelics are legal so that finally after 50 or 60 years in the barren wasteland of not being allowed to do research, uh, we'll be able to do some. And yeah. so you got your certification as a psychedelic assisted psychotherapist, and then you got some news. Tell us. I did. So in the course of a week, you know, there's some things that happen in life that just the synchronicity and, you know, it's just it's obvious that there's more going on here than meets the eye. So in the course of a week, I received my certification in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. I also got a diagnosis of breast cancer. And I also got a phone call from Silo Wellness, their director saying, hey, I was thinking about you and wonder if you want to work with us maybe on some plant medicine and cancer and end of life programs, unbeknownst that I had gotten this cancer diagnosis. So all in the course of a week, all of these things converged. And to me, it was like, wow, this, this is a really obvious that my use of plant medicine is really going to be in service of people. And particularly, I think now there's this calling to really explore the use with women and cancer diagnosis, people with cancer diagnosis, and not just end of life, but early in your cancer diagnosis. So I got this breast cancer diagnosis out of the blue. My house is on the market. I'm about to go to Portugal. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, stop. You got to deal with this. Um, it's very early stage breast cancer that, you know, they could just take the little section of it out and do some stuff. And I said, you know what? My mother died of breast cancer. Let's just clean the slate. Take them both. I'm done with them. <laughs> you can give me some new ones. But, you know, so I've elected to do a double mastectomy with reconstruction. And that's no small thing to do. It's a kind of big deal. And and so one of the first things I did was say, I really need to do a psilocybin journey. I need to have a different level of understanding and awareness about what this is coming into my life. This is a really big thing going on. And I know, I know that everything that's happening in our lives is always happening on so many more levels. So I decided to do a psilocybin journey with a brand new cancer diagnosis. And if that doesn't make you face some shadow and some some demons. I don't know what does. <laughs> so before I ask you to tell us about this psychedelic, this one that you took right after you got the diagnosis, I'm going to share with you that this past year, I also got a diagnosis of cancer. And uh, I got a diagnosis of, uh, I turned 82 last year, and I was healthy, endurance athlete, uh, in great shape, very strong. And three months later, or four months later, I got this uh, uh, diagnosis. I, I had had a, a pimple on my forehead, right I mean, my temple right over here. And my doctor was freezing it off with, um, with liquid nitrogen. 
And after a year of freezing, it didn't go away. I said, you know, you maybe you better send it in for a biopsy. And he sends it in and I get a letter the next week saying malignant melanoma nodular type. Uh, I go and look it up with my wife and it says kills you in six weeks. And it was like, oh my gosh, you know, like I'm going to get my affairs in order. And how, the, and how the hell am I still alive if I've had this thing for a year, right? So uh, I also engaged in some, uh, some psychedelic work, but I, I'll save that for another time. I want to hear, go, I just wanted to share that with you as, you know, we're fellow travelers uh, um, on the cancer routine. Um, and um, I want to hear more now about the psilocybin. You know, the first thing I do when I journey with myself or when I'm leading people is I often use one of my decks of, you know, various decks of sort of spiritual reading cards. And so I gave my, I do a little reading to set intention. And the first two cards that jumped right out at me were laugh at your demons, face your shadow and trust the path. So those, those were the cards that I pulled preemptively. Laugh, laugh at your demons. Face the shadow. And trust the path. And trust the path. Okay. And the other one that literally, as I was sort of cleaning up the cards, fell out like, wait, I'm supposed to be here too, was retreats. And my whole thing that I do in regard, my whole goal in life is to lead psilocybin retreats and do this work with in groups and do retreats. So those were my cards. So I did four grams of mushrooms, went behind, did my whole deep journey. And boy, I did a lot of the, the main thing that kept coming up over and over. So I mentioned that my mother had died of breast cancer. I got a lot of information about intergenerational fear that's being carried that I'm carrying. I got a direct message that this cancer in my body is fear turned cellular, that this cancer is fear turned cellular. And I'm aware that I, you know, I tend to, I'm a, I'm a stress specialist. I'm very good, but I do occasionally, you know, I'll be, there's this low level catastrophizing that goes on that comes from my mother, right? Who was sort of a fear-based thinker. And I realized that there are ways in which as boldly and optimistically and beautifully as I live in this world, there are ways that I carry fear that has become this cancer for me. And I'm not saying that's what it is for everyone, but that is the message that I got. And that part of my healing is going to take place on many levels, not just physical, but it's going to be this emotional and spiritual releasing of this intergenerational sort of fear-based thinking is part of my release into this next phase of my life. And I had this funny sort of vision of it's like, you know, sacrificing my boobs at the altar that, you know, that as I release them, I'm also releasing this history of fear-based thinking that several women in multiple generations before me have carried. So it's like, I almost then also had this vision while I was on my journey of engaging with my surgeon and letting her know that this was also a psychic surgery, that we needed to not just be attending to the physical cancer in my body that, but this was, I needed her to be in partnership with me, that this was a psychic surgery as well, because things are happening on so many levels, physical, emotional, spiritual, it's all happening to me. That's what's going on here in my life. And the bigger message kept being as above, so below. And I was getting messages about 
what we carry and hold in our minds manifests in our bodies. Now, I know this. We know this. This is so much a part of the mind-body work I do. You know, my favorite big word, my, I have a favorite word, and my favorite big word is psychoneuroimmunology, right? That how emotional and psychological states directly impact our immune system and our bodies. And that's what, that is what the mushroom kept saying to me, Heather, your work is to really bring this so people really understand how thoughts manifest in our bodies and how we need to be attending to these things on all levels and to be in service of the mushroom. And I'm not sure that mushroom trips are for everybody with a cancer diagnosis, but part of what I got is the understanding and the wisdom that I get and from doing this work with my own cancer, I can impart and help other people with their work. And tell me what your surgeon's reaction was when you told her that this is more than a physical operation. Well, this was in the in my mental in my journey state. Yes. So I did what wasn't. But she was she was like there was a white light shining around her. Yes. And she was like, I know, I know, I understand that that's part of what I am doing in this work with you. That was in your own mind. Did you eventually say it to her personally? I haven't yet, but you know, I wrote a poem to my boobs. I wrote a farewell to my tatas, a tata to the tatas, which I sent to her and she absolutely loved. So we have a lovely rapport and I'm sure she will be quite on board with that because I also plan on bringing my little medicine bag of crystals into the surgery room. So she knows that she's dealing with somebody who's addressing this from a mind, body, spirit perspective. Please send us that poem to your tatas. <laughs> I will. Will you do that? I will. I absolutely will. Okay. Because... Um, we're we're in the process of uh, of uh, considering uh, a book on healing and psychedelics, and if so, you'll be in it. And oh, and if, if, if that happens, uh, we'll put your poem in as oh, well. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And uh, and when is your surgery? It's Tuesday the fourteenth. Oh, it's coming up soon. It's kind of sooner the better. Let's just get this show on the road. I got some healing to do. Okay, well, I'm going to mark it on my calendar, and I'll be sending golden light to you from the from oh, the Golden State. I love that. Now, so tell me your experience, if if you don't mind, or if the, now is not the time. I understand, but I would love to hear. You can ask me anything anytime. I'm committed to that. Good. Well, so you in, you took some mushrooms to question about your cancer and what kind of information did you get? Well, actually, I took LSD. Okay. And what I discovered was that, and it turned out to be accurate, that I ha had been invaded and my body put up a wall and surrounded the invader. And when my surgeon uh, went in and they cut away the, uh, the, the malignant tumor, and then they cut down the side of your face to the lymph gland right underneath the jawline, because that's the first place it metastasizes to. Right. And so to get an idea, you know, if it's there and it's gone to the other parts of the body. And the biopsy from the uh, lymph gland uh, came back negative. So I said to the surgeon, well, how sure are we that it didn't bypass the lymph gland and go right to other areas of the body like the organs? And he said, well, 90 to 95 percent. 
I said, well, how do we make sure on the other 10, five or 10%? He said, you have to get a, t a PET scan. So I got the PET scan and it came back negative. So I said to him, well, how do, how do I have a, a malignant melanoma of the nodular kind that my wife and I look up and it says it can kill you in six weeks. And, and, and then I go to the hospital to give blood and the woman's filling out forms and she's got a trainee standing next to her. And I see the trainee looks down at my diagnosis and her face just, I could see the blood drain right out of her face. And I looked at her and I said, what happened when you saw that? What happened to you? She said, oh my gosh. She said, I see what you have. And my aunt just died of that in six weeks. So her aunt got the exact six weeks that we looked up. And I, so, so that's what, what I'm dealing with. So I say to, to, uh, to uh, Dr. Jonathan George, my great surgeon, I said, how does it happen that I, I'm free? And he said, your immune system built a capsule around the melanoma and prevented it from going anywhere. So how about that? Quite a story. How about that? Really? Yeah. So um, what I continue to do, just uh, uh, since you asked, um, from the time I, I got the diagnosis until the time that I was clear, um, I, I microdosed frequently. And I did it with the idea being that if, in fact, LSD does what Amanda brought to us with those wonderful MRI pictures that were published on the front page, I believe, of the New York Times, you know, it excites the electrical system and sort of clears out the system. I was looking to do something to clear those channels in some way, you know, and I don't really know what I'm saying here because it's more sort of woo-woo, but I, I was looking to clear the channels, to clear out the electrical system. And, you know, it's only an anecdotal story, but if we have enough of those anecdotal stories, then they, then they count, right? Absolutely, right. you bet, that, you bet. That's right. Yeah, just like, you know, with mine, it was the, the message was so clear that, you know, you can't, I, I can't just go have this surgery and cut it out. That will not be enough. I need to make sure I'm attending to this on the emotional, spiritual, psychological, ancestral level as well. Yes. So more about your psychedelic journey. You went on uh, eventually to get uh, trained in, in psychedelic assisted therapy, but in yeah. terms of your own, um, your own path and the use of psychedelics, um, what what reactions, if any, have you gotten from friends and colleagues about your use of psychedelics over these years? Well, I think now when, you know, when I start the conversation, I kind of, you know, you got to know your audience, right? All the, always, right? <laughs> so there's certain audiences that I start by immediately throwing some Johns Hopkins words their way, you know, oh, well, you know, the researchers that I'm working with or, you know, studied with who are at Johns Hopkins kind of puts a little credibility there. But I'm finding that most people are really receptive. And because I have a lot of stories from, you know, my work with people in Jamaica with psilocybin, seeing the impact on treatment-resistant depression, having my own experiences, I'm finding people are really open and receptive. People are looking for new ways to heal emotionally and spiritually. I think we're all recognizing what a state of distress there is 
in people's hearts, minds, and souls right now all over the planet for various reasons. So I think when they hear that there's this, that the intention and the use of these medicines is healing, it's bringing healing, it's bringing hope. It's not, it's not to party. It's not just to like, it's to deepen our connection to the planet and each other and build community. I think that's where I'm finding people, there's this really greater receptivity because the use of this is in service to the betterment of the planet and mankind. You know, I'm a, in private practice. I have a lot of college students as clients and I see a lot of uh, eco-anxiety. A lot of young people who have this distress about the state of the planet. Should I be having kids? Young, beautiful women in their 20s going, I just don't know, you know, is the planet even going to be here? Everything, you know, it's just such a bad state of affairs with global warming. So this anxiety that about that, and I'll tell you what, psilocybin is a powerful medicine for giving people a sense of connection and hopefulness around the planet. I'll tell you one quick story. So I was having my own eco-anxiety and did some plant medicine, took some psilocybin, went out in the beautiful wilderness of Colorado, specifically to sort of with the intention of addressing my eco-anxiety. And I was looking and there are these giant boulders. And you know how when you look at a rock, it's kind of got, you know, ripples of color through it. And I'm looking at this boulder and it just starts laughing at me. And it says, you do realize we used to be liquid. <laughs> and it says, we're all but shapeshifters. Just calm down. We are millions and billions of years old and things might change, but energy remains and we're all but shapeshifters. And that was this wonderful, calming takeaway I had from my, that chilled out my eco-anxiety. That's a wonderful story. I love that story of The Rock talking to you. Uh, I've had similar experiences where I can see the spaces between the molecules and what appears to us to be things that are solid and having yes. the realization that nothing's really solid. It's And it's not, no, and that's the truth. Right. It's sort of solid-ish, if you will. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, the very fact that we can cut through things with knives or saws and so, you know, is the, is the, the, the ultimate evidence. You, you referenced seeing some really interesting, I don't know if you use the word cures, but healing of treatment-resistant depression while you were in Jamaica. Please share a story or two of something that you witnessed. I will. It's just really profound. So one of the gentlemen who came on the retreat was in his mid-60s, very successful surgeon, man of science. He had been struggling with treatment resistant depression for decades, had been on every SSRI out there and had had three rounds of electric shock and now was on lithium, which like they don't even use anymore. I mean, so they were rolling out the big guns trying to help this guy make some change. Nothing was working. He came to Jamaica, again, a physician, man of science said, you know, I don't know if I believe in this. I don't know, but I've seen some research studies. And if this doesn't work, I don't know that I can go on living. I mean, I am just suffering, you know, flat affect, just you could see this man was crippled by his depression. So, you know, we do the, in the course of a week, we do three medicine sessions. It's first and second, not a whole lot of shift, 
little bit of opening up on his third dosing session. We gave him a very significant amount of mushrooms. I think there's a diminishing point of returns on how much you eat, but it was a significant amount for this man. He lay quiet for six hours behind his eye shades with his music on. We thought, is anything going on there? I mean, nothing. He got up at the end of the six hours. He was a little teary. He said, I'm just going to go to my room. I'll see you at integration circle in the morning. The next morning when he came to the circle, he was crying like a baby. I mean, couldn't have had enough tissues, was, you know, sobbing and said, I had the most profound experience. He said, I saw myself as a five-year-old boy. I came, I came running around the corner and grabbed my own leg and looked up and said, oh my God, I knew you'd come back for me. I knew you'd find me. He said, when I was five, my father died. I immediately got a new stepfather who said to me, do not cry. You need to be the man now. He said, I had priests and other people in my life also saying, you need to be the man now. Shut your emotions down. Do not cry. He said, when I was five, he said, on my psilocybin journey, I saw my little five-year-old self come running to me and jump up into my arms. I knew you'd come back for me. I knew because I'm never abandoning that kid again. And I realize now he needed to cry and I need to cry and I need to feel all my emotions and I need to let that little kid feel all his emotions. And that's where my healing's going to come from. And that man had this transformation of being locked up in depression to being able to emote and cry and feel and recognize where and when he shut down. And it was like 30 years of therapy in that one session. And then of course the work is to take that, integrate that, continue to help him on his journey on working in re-embracing his lost child self and learning how to feel his emotions. Marvelous story. I was picturing it as you were talking, and I saw this boy being told to stuff his feelings, and stuffing is like pushing or depressing, and he was literally depressed. He had his feelings depressed for all that time, and finally, with the, with the psilocybin, he was able to say, I can let myself have all my feelings. That's a, that's a, that's a wonderful, wonderful healing story. Now, in this protocol uh, in Jamaica for the uh, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, uh, you stated that the person, uh, the people take uh, three sessions the first week. Uh, can they stay longer and take additional sessions, or how does that work? No, it's a, you're, you're there for a week and with these three dosing sessions. I, I don't think that we've ever, we've had, we have people who have come back and been repeat um, guests, but nobody's sort of stayed and done. Okay. Extended. Okay. Three sessions every other day. And do you uh, uh, recall the dosage that are uh, dosages that are used for the three sessions? Well, then it's there, there, we really, it's, it's customized and individualized to each person I for see. this gentleman, you know, it was over 10 grams oh, that he did. Oh, it was a very heroic, what we call a heroic dose. It really was. I, You know, I do wonder if there's a diminishing point of returns at some point, you know, yeah. 10, mm -hmm. 20, sure. 40. So. That's right. It's true with LSD at a certain number when you get up high enough too. Uh, yeah. But there, there's a cutoff point. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I think, Richard, the amazing thing, and we both, we've, we're both speaking of this, is the way these medicines speak to us in a way that where the healing comes 
is through these deeply experiential understandings of things that is beyond what we do in talk therapy and just being in this part of your brain. I mean, this man felt himself embrace his lost child, right? Like my cancer, I felt that this was happening on all these other levels. I experienced that. It's an experiential like embracing of a knowledge and wisdom that goes beyond processing it through your brain. It's knowing it cellularly, right? It's yes. just so powerful. It's what Heinlein called grokking. I don't know if you know. Yes. Remember that from Stranger in a Strange Land? Yeah, yeah. And I and you mentioned it. And I remember thinking, oh, that's very cool. Yeah. That's what it is. It's a total knowing, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'll go so far as to say, I think that this is a time on the planet when the mushrooms are trying to help us. <laughs> the mushrooms are trying to speak to as many, as many of us as they can to help us with so many ills that are befalling us. I think an argument could be made that the entire planet is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. And I'm not even sure that the trauma is post yet. We, yeah. we, may, yeah. be, we may be suffering from ongoing trauma stress disorder. Yeah. Right? Because now we're having, in, in this little town that I live in, there's suddenly a resurgence of COVID. And people aren't knowing what to do. Do they mask up and social distance and close their stores again? Or what do you do, right? So we're facing that. And, and that's being faced around the world. You read, we read reports from China and various other places. Um, what have you been taught about frequency of ingestion of psychedelic substances, in this case, uh, psychedelic mushrooms? Well, I think, you know, I don't know that I've been taught that there's any one particular protocol that one size fits all. I think it, it, these are powerful medicines. I don't think they need to be taken on a super regular basis. I think they are taken, they need to be taken with great intention about what is what is your purpose? Are you looking, do you need, are you garnering insight and awareness about a particular issue? I do it quarterly to sort of as a maintenance of my own emotional and psychological wellness and openness um, and neuroplasticity. You know, I so I don't know that I have an answer for you of if there's a particular protocol that's right to prescribe. I think, I think it's really always thinking, what is the intention of my use of this medicine? Is it you know, is it to address an issue? Is it to face a certain something? Is it for personal growth and development? But but I don't think there is one size fits all. And I think microdosing has a great place in this whole spectrum of things um, that, and I think there needs to be more research done. I think a lot of the, you know, the reports on benefits from uh, microdosing are very antidotal at the moment. And a lot, you know, a lot of it might be placebo. I am the biggest fan of placebo in the world. If you tell me, I'm like a cheap date. You just give me something and tell me what it's going to do and it's going to do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love the placebo effect. The story you told of this physician uh, is, is a, a great exemplar. Do you have a second story from the, from the experience down there to share with us? Or is that the one that's like so outstanding? We better leave it at that. Well, that one is one that stand, stands out. There was also a woman who had was really just coming out of an incredibly abusive marriage, emotionally abusive, 30 years with a 
you know, a narcissist who was constantly gaslighting her and just undermining her whole understanding of who she was. And she had, you know, escaped that marriage. And I do use the word escape um, and was here on retreat. And in one in her first psilocybin journey, and this was somebody you know, who was psychedelically naive, who had not done any psychedelics, was a little fearful, you know, but we create such a lovely, safe container. Um, but in her journey, she was sitting on the ground and she had a complete vision of these chains around her neck, these big, heavy chains of bondage, right, that she had had in this marriage. And in, the, in her experience, she kind of slid them off her and the chains fell and were t- absorbed into the ground, like root, and just pulled away from her. And then she felt herself like lighten up and start moving back up into this different realm as the chains went down into the earth. So that was another one. And again, you know, I love symbology. And, you know, so the way that this medicine works with these wonderful, powerful symbols of metaphor and experience. So this woman, her bonds, these chains just fell away and were absorbed into the earth, releasing her. How beautiful is that? (laughs) Very beautiful. Uh, And the song, Unchain My Heart, was ringing through my Uh, head. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's another great story. Yeah, yeah. It's been a real pleasure. uh, Oh, it's been lovely. Being with you, Heather. And I, I... I wish you the greatest good fortune with uh, with your surgery coming up. Thank you. Okay. And I'll shoot you an email after your surgery and find out how you're doing. Oh. Oh.